1: Welcome to the next Reels, Movies We Like, part of the True Story FM Entertainment Network. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. I'm Pete Wright. On today's episode, we have invited filmmaker Uwe Boll to talk about a story about oil, blood, and milkshakes. It's There Will Be Blood, a movie that he likes.
2: Ladies and gentlemen... I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my
2: partner, H.W. Plainview. You boys are a regular family business. You have a great chance
0: here. My son is a healer and a vessel for the Holy Spirit. He has a church.
2: You will be cast up and the back of the partition. I'm fixed like no other company in this field. I have a string of tools ready to put to work. That's why I can guarantee to start drilling and to put up the cash to back my word. I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what the others promise to do, when it comes to the showdown, they won't be there.
0: There's a whole ocean of
2: oil under our feet. No one can get at it except for me.
0: We'll offer 150000 for full title. When do we get our money, Daniel? I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. Don't bully me, Daniel, please!
2: I see the worst in people. We have a sinner with us. Get out of here, devil!
0: I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed.
2: can't keep doing this on my own with these um, people
1: (laughs) welcome to the show uve hello hello (laughs) <laughs> I cannot believe, I cannot believe I'm
0: staring at your face right now. And I'm giddy with excitement here. This is fantastic.
1: We are sure. <laughs> we are thrilled to have you here. We are thrilled to be talking with you uh, and thrilled particularly about this movie that you picked, which is a fantastic, fantastic film to have a conversation about for sure. Uh, before we start talking about uh, There Will Be Blood, though, let's talk a little bit about you and your, and your filmmaking career. I know it's, uh, you've had... Uh, I think it's fair to say uh, ups and downs and some uh some criticisms and everything but I I think that I don't know having looked at some of the films that you've made I think that there's a lot more to uh what you're wanting to say and trying to say with some of your films than uh people always give you credit for. People uh, overlooked that it. it did 35 films <laughs> in right. <my> Yeah,
2: <laughs> and uh there was a uh, basically Uh, A phase of video game based films Like House of the Dead And then Alone in the Dark And so on And that in a way Tainted the other films You know It was this kind of like Nobody discussed Darfur Or Southern Wall Street And whatever And uh, But over time People watched that films I I recognized more and more That people like Changing a little The opinion about me After a while And uh, Films like Rampage And Postal They went a little like uh, into a cult movie uh, situation over the years because they had a good word of mouth, you know, and, and people said, "No, you have to watch that film; that is actually really good." And I think that so that helps in a way now uh, the situation. But it was it was not easy. But it was funny when when last week was I think the Hollywood Reporter like video games are the new comic books.
0: Yeah, I I wondered if you uh, if you knew that. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you know Mario Brothers invented that, man? I, I don't know what you're doing.
2: <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> uh, out of the blue, video games are
0: yeah. <laughs> I'm right. right. shocked. I'm shocked. <laughs> Can I, I want to ask you about this, about cult film status, because looking at your, at, at, at your filmography, I mean, as you say, 35 films, but of those films, you have. Uh, uh, strong audiences around uh, many of them, people who feel very strongly about these movies, and, and we'll call them cult movies. How does that make you feel as a filmmaker that that you have these movies that move out of uh, sort of popular fandom and into cult status? Does that does that change the way you look at the films that you've made? No, I
2: mean, I uh, the, the films they turned into, let's say, not uh, some cult movies, of, but uh, got some credits later were also the films I liked more, you know, but it was, uh, I came out of the film, heart of America about school violence, uh, into house of the dead. And that was like a, a, a total jump. But when you make a film like heart of America and had Elizabeth Moss in it, for example, who turned into a big star later, yeah. uh, you know, and, uh, and you make no money, you know, so and and uh it was a disaster, financial disaster. And then you do House of the Dead and uh everybody hates you, but at the same time they sell like five million DVDs. That is a different situation And that was one of the reasons I started making more films about with video games, because uh I'm not like an art house filmmaker who, who gets subsidies and whatsoever. So I had to see for what is, is money in the market? Like, what can I get financed? And so I don't, I don't want to also miss that films because this films also made it possible that I could do rampage later and, and so on, you know? So I had like, uh, uh worldwide sales. People were buying my films and then you can sell them also something smaller. You can say, look, but it's an overball film, even if no big stars are in it. And uh that that of course uh, helped my career. I think what the, the thing what I was disappointed on in a way, uh is that the normal uh newspaper uh movie critics, I, I had the feeling they never watched my films. I think they kind of wrote the same review, whatever film I did. And uh when I won that, that Raspberry. I wanted for Postal, what I think is a total joke, because if they would actually watch Postal, they would maybe saw that 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 is one of the, uh, one first of all, I think one of my best films, but also um, it has an unbelievable satire uh, background, what now 15 years later is not really aged. I think Postal you can watch today. And everybody would say that it's the most politically incorrect thing I saw in the last 10 years, if you just air it today. And I think that that is uh, needed. Actually, films like Postal would be needed now, too. I think if, if I would try to do uh, to do Postal now, all that actors would not play in it. Nobody, would, would, say like Nobody would say anything. Nobody would say, oh, you cannot do this. You will get canceled for the rest of your life.
0: I actually wonder, Uva, if you would get the actors that were in it. Would you get Foley? Would you get Vern Troyer? Would you get those? Could you get those people to be in that movie today? No, I don't think so. I think like J.K. Simmons or whatever, they would all tell him, you cannot do this.
2: You know, like stuff like this. uh, But at that time, they loved it. They loved to be in that film and they went all out. Like they they totally didn't care about any uh, consequences. So it was kind of a more... uh, like a freedom, what, what people had and what artists could do. And you know, when you listen to the, the Uwe raw talk, uh, uh, like, you know, like in the podcast, I'm not willing to obey or something, right? So it's, it's. I think that the freedom of speech also the freedom of art and especially satire uh, has to be allowed, and it has to be insulting for some people. Otherwise, it's not funny. I mean, if you want to make it right to everybody, you're not funny at all. So it's uh, it's basically the when you see the genres now, what we have. Where is another naked gun? Where is it another something's wrong about Mary? Whatever, all that comedy's hangover, I think would never get sh- done again. So, and I think it's, it's horrible that comedy now is the, is the subject or the genre what is hit the hardest with this political landscape uh, we're living in now for uh, the last few years.
1: Well, and I think that's an interesting point, and 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 you know, using Postal as a as a jumping point because Postal is, I mean, it it's a very funny film, and it's very dark in kind of the the satire that it's playing. Um, but I think you look at something like that, which also, I mean, came in line with video game adaptations that you were doing. But then you look at what you did in Rampage which is a pretty dark movie following, you know, the the shooter as he's kind of going through town and, and just killing people. But then you have a scene where he walks into the uh, the bingo palace, and he's just looking around at everybody who's is like, these people clearly don't need my help, and walks out. I mean, it's just like, it was so dark, but I was like, I was laughing out loud at something like that. And I'm like, I shouldn't be laughing at this. This is horrible. But wow, I mean, there's something to be said when you inject that kind of humor into a moment like like that and in a film like that. So I think that I think you're right. There yeah. it's it's challenging people. And I think that's sometimes people just don't like to be challenged.
0: Well and that's what I mean comedy comes from discomfort, right? If we're not if we if we aren't able to poke at our own discomfort, then if if we exacerbate discomfort from the equation, there is there's nothing left to be funny. Yes. We have to we have to be able to to seek out discomfort to be able to laugh.
2: Yeah and to be surprised for yourself, right? If you yeah. can guess Every joke, what's coming? It's not funny. I mean, that you start bursting, a lot, start laughing about things when you when you have the feeling, wow, that guy goes for it, or whatever, right? So, I was when I I shot a film in in New York uh, uh, recently, right? First shift, like it as so, in a way, a little like my comeback film, a police film. So, I went in the comedy club in New York City and uh, and listened to the to the stand ups, and I was, I have to say, shocked how politically correct they tried to make the show, right? How they try to basically not to offend everybody. And I was bored shitless. I was sitting there like, what is this? <laughs> you know, like people making jokes about what what juice you drink. And it's just like weak, you know? It was for me, it was weak. And I want to go like getting challenged if I sit in a comedy club. And I remember in old days uh, where I was more in LA, I went to the comedy stores there a lot. And they were like full on insulting everybody and also the audience, you know, like what you're doing, or you're fed, fuck, whatever, like stuff like this. But that is why I want to be in a live audience at a comedy store. You know, it's, it's this kind of it's a different thing as a film, but those need to get you off your comfort zone. And then I I feel good. But now we're living in a world where everybody's offended when you say I don't like your pullover. The whole world breaks apart, and uh you cannot do this. I'm doing suicide now. So that is ridiculous. I mean, look behind you—the Doctor Strangelove poster. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, one of the the biggest satires, the most famous satires uh, in the history. You know, and I think that is it's very important uh, to not like. uh Omit that genre, and that is right now happening. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. It's, it's very, it's a, it gives a, a very bad uh, feeling about it. No, yeah, but uh, it is what it is. You know, we we have it to. It is, yeah. Do it, and I feel that sometimes uh, the media is blowing things up totally out of proportions and helping them. You know, they help the Twitter mob to succeed, basically, right? In can't be a person or whatever, because then they report about it in the real newspapers
1: and stuff, and then uh, people getting like uh, losing everything they have. It's interesting, and I think you have found a way to kind of keep pushing and, and doing things with your films that certainly is intriguing and it makes for very interesting watches. So, but I want to use this point, I want to shift over to uh, start talking about. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's 2007 film, There Will Be Blood, uh, the film that you picked, something that uh, you are a big fan of. And I want to start our conversation uh, just thinking about some of the the, the stories that you tell and, and, you know, just what we've been talking about, kind of going to these dark places. And I think this film has such an interesting story that we're following this really dark, really unlikable, very greedy protagonist. And I, I think that let's start with Daniel Plainview and just kind of... Talk a little bit about you know having a complex protagonist like this. Yeah, I mean,
2: for, for, for me, when I when I watched the film, um, it was like I had no clue first what it what it is, and and then Clark, my uh, the producer I worked with on a lot of films, he was in New York at the screening with Daniel de Lewis and Paul Thomas Anderson, and uh, where they did uh, like question and answers when. it went. A preview or whatever, and he said, no you have to watch that film over and then when it came I, I watched it right away, and I felt like this is a film why I want to make movies like that was this kind of uh what I don't have a lot, you know like like uh there's a reason also like when i when they asked me you know, what film I want to talk about um I could say Jaws whatever like there are some films the apocalypse now there are like in my past where I feel like uh, they, these are these kind of uh, movies I love, and I, uh, uh, and they made their stamp on me basically. But when I watched that film for years, I didn't got that impact what I got on this film. It was really like um, the consequence with with Daniel Day Lewis uh, character. You know that he didn't even try it. To be like a likable person, I mean the ultimate betrayal on that kid, yeah. you know, to use the handicapped kid to gain power and money. Uh, that was, of course, the most ridiculous uh, uh, twist, also, you know, and how he then offloads him into the uh, garbage, basically, you know. Uh, uh, that was, but that made me feel like what I felt with for example the shining or uh, you know where you get so surprised and blown away where you feel like fuck yeah <laughs> you know so, so <laughs> this, this this was the feeling what I didn't have for a long time when 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 I watched that film and uh, it was a, a um, or or citizen Kane too what is a, another very big anti-hero story sure but in a way in Citizen Kane I feel that he was more in a way, more likable because he was more a victim
1: as Daniel Day-Lewis was in "In There Will Be Blood. Right. You see his fall. Like, we see where he starts. He's likable at the beginning, but then we see over time that Kane yes. kind of slowly goes downhill. Whereas, yeah, Daniel Plainview, uh, other you pretty much get a sense from the start that this guy is here for money and doesn't like people. Yes, you know what? Controversial opinion. Okay. Okay. I like Daniel Plainview. I like Daniel Plainview
0: a lot. And I think one of the bits of brilliance about this movie is Daniel Plainview, as unlikable as he is, is to me at least likable enough that he is misunderstood in a world that is brand new, right? Like, He is doing stuff that nobody understands how to do right now, except for the giant, giant companies. And he's working incredibly hard at it, right? This is a story about what price success. And uh, there is something about the way this movie starts, with him breaking his leg, falling down in a well that demonstrates how hot and hard and incredibly painful his success ends up being. And I don't like a lot of the stuff that he does, but there's something about, Daniel Plainview's er, work ethic that is kind of appealing to me. I I I don't hate him.
2: No, no, you, you're right that he's not like he's not like trying to steal it in a way. Even if he steals <laughs> Even if he's trying to steal it, He's drinking yeah, a lot you know, of yeah. but like, you know, so it's <laughs> no, but it's, it's kind of like yes, he's a hard-working guy. And he, he puts everything into uh, his uh, success. And and uh, this kind of like entrepreneur at the times where you could just claim your stake in something. You know, you just went out there in the prairie and that is now my land. A little what we have now in the TV show Yellowstone in a way, right? In a totally different uh, kind of surrounding, but similar. You know, the old days where the land you could just conquer. and declare it yourself and that that is my my land now and if you had a gun people had to take it away from you with violence if they wanted it so that that 100 i agree that he works hard but in the very end i think it's uh there's a i don't know even who said it schopenhauer some big philosophy said like it's basically greed what tribes what what drives history and i have to say like you know, getting older myself and reading more and stuff like this—it's that is the truth. When you when you watch, if you watch the Ukraine war or Taiwan coming up, all that shit—it's all greed. It's like, uh, and it's individual people or dictators or whatsoever that moved the history more as anything else, more as love, definitely. You know, and compassion or empathy—that didn't—that are all things we all want. That people are like this. But when you go through history, it was always basically similar to there will be blood. Yes. And uh and, and people got left out and, and left like dumped into no man's land and they could die and starve to death. In their times also, people starve to death still you know so they didn't you saw that in the restaurant scenes and there would be blood right so where like a steak was a big thing to eat a, to eat a steak and stuff like this and uh, th- that was also I think uh, um, just correctly told you know that, that you had the feeling that was the surrounding people actually lived at that time and you were basically a workhorse you worked till you're dead and that was a you know but, of course, the film would be not so good if Paul Dano would be not in it. Oh, oh uh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. And that was... Also, I think, I think it was the first time I saw that actor. It
1: was like... The church scene, it was just unbelievable, you know? And when he had to... Wh- which one, the first one, when he's helping the lady or the later one, when he uh, brings Daniel... The upstairs?
2: later one... Uh, I mean, the first one was great, too. But But, I mean, when
1: he basically...
2: Wants to overpower Daniel DeLewis Lewis in a way, and, and on his own turf. Yeah, and you know, like when you see that scene later, you know he's dead. Like he will, <laughs> yeah, back, pretty much. <laughs> he will come back to him, and uh-uh. for this, he will die. You know, that is saying what uh, you know. And then this whole scene with, with his brother, uh, uh, you know, killing his fake brother or whatsoever. But there, I'm, 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 I'm right with Pete there. The situation with the brother was almost that the guy deserved to die.
1: That's kind of the setup, right? It's a really interesting way that that plays because, I mean, he essentially is this criminal. I mean, he ad, you know admits that he had been in prison and all of this sort of stuff. But he, as we learn, he faked this whole thing. You know, your brother died of tuberculosis. I didn't kill him, but he really did die. But yes, I did steal his story and this is this person who has infiltrated his way into Daniel's life uh to kind of you know become a a partner or in some, i mean i don't know what his intentions were to like really become a partner or, or i mean Daniel really kind of welcomes him in as uh, family blood and everything but uh it it is it's definitely a dark turn that that we see with Daniel take but i mean yeah there is an interesting element there is an you can read it where daniel there's some justification for being upset at the way that this person did that but again the lens of
0: time right but the at this time as you say that there is the problems are solved with violence i think all of these character sort of avatars can be applied to uh, and and this is one of the bits of genius about Paul Thomas Anderson is just being able to write a script that you can you can take these characters like Daniel Plainview and Henry beautifully cast with like uh, played by uh, Kevin O'Connor who kind of looks like Daniel Day-Lewis a little bit the you know works for the family thing and actually like how many Daniel Plainviews do you feel like we have on Wall Street right now like those stories <laughs> are played out with just different tools every day and and that is uh that's that's one of the things that I think is is really just so perfect about their relationship that betrayal ends in violence uh his his adopted son lights their cabin on fire what is that cabin on fire a metaphor for today it plays out all the time those sorts of betrayal we're watching the same thing on succession every week right like it's, it's succession <laughs> is there will be blood right now <laughs> yeah
2: it's it's funnier as there will be blood right uh, yeah right. It, right. It, it, in in a way you know so and and more in a way more enjoyable more commercial but i think also when paul dano is coming in the end there uh, And, uh, it's all about the money, right? Even in the church and he acts the whole time. He's like serving God or whatever. It's all bullshit. It's like in the very end, it's all about the money. Right. And then the ultimate victory that he doesn't want need the land anymore because he sucked, sucked the oil out of, (laughs) out of the (laughs) the, uh, under, uh, underground, basically, you know, and it was just, uh, how he kills him with the, on the bowling alley. No, I was really like, I didn't have a lot of films, you know, where you you get a like like uh, goosebumps in a way, yeah, you know. So and I got that in that film various times, where where you where you get really surprised about also how it turns and where you you didn't saw it coming this way, and that is not a lot of times, uh, I think, happening when you watch films. Right. So in a, in a positive way, you know, I just watched here, everything, everything, whatever, all at once. And I I have to say it's for me, a guy wrote, it's like a 130 minutes TikTok video. And that was actually my feeling too. You know, I never got emotionally connected to that film. It's, it's uh, interesting done. It's like, it has a lot of uh, crazy scenes and uh, uh, a lot of, let's say, intercutting with animation and all kinds of going to different dimensions. But it's not a film what got me emotional. And The, the Will Be Blood is the opposite. It got me completely sucked in and where you feel like, wow. You know, I liked at that point Paul Thomas Anderson. That was before he made a few bad films, basically. You know, so The Master and so on. So that he did some films after... Up to now, the licorice pizza, what I really liked, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's not like there will be blood quality, but but it's good. it's a good film. I enjoyed to watch it. It was a feel-good movie, and it was uh, it's like crazy uh, uh, with Bradley Cooper was was a great side story. It,
1: so great, yeah.
2: <laughs> so I really liked it. it was, I was happy that I liked it again, because Paul Thomas Anderson was... Uh, with Boogie Nights you know, so, you know he was one of my favorite directors He came out of nowhere in a way And I had an, a feeling about him How I had it with Quentin Tarantino After I watched like Reservoir Dogs And you know like I felt like Wow that guy's great Like uh, I love that film and Pulp Fiction You know and, and that is the thing It's like and I think There Will Be Blood Was the best film he he did and it had nothing to do with his personal life what is interesting because he said he likes films about his personal living in the valley and growing up like this and that was the film that was maybe the farthest away from Paul Thomas Anderson's
1: personal life but it, it's ultimately his his uh, masterpiece And really the first time he's adapted anything too. you know, pulling, uh, adapted, you know, loosely in quotes. I mean, it's in the film, uh, you know, adapted from oil by Upton Sinclair. But when you look at the synopsis of that (laughs) compared to this, uh, you know, it's pretty different. Yes. It's like, still. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: And I mean, the sound in the film was also, uh, the music and the sound was, was just unbelievable, uh, the concept you have, like, I mean, it's tough to get that concept, right? So, but, but, uh, when it turned
1: into action, uh, who did that music again? That was a famous, yeah, Johnny Greenwood did the music for it. Yeah. And I mean, you have yeah. some of those moments where it's like that, especially like at the beginning, is that real slow, like that discordant build of just a, yes. a bunch of notes just kind of finding themselves. And, and that plays a number of times throughout the films. And it, I, I think it fits perfectly for the tone of, what they're doing with this story, which is, uh, yeah, I don't know, it just it feels natural with the way that it that it plays here. Yeah, it, the, building that sense of discomfort. Like I, I'm curious, your, you know, your,
0: if, if you could in, encapsulate the importance of discomfort in filmmaking, because I mean, your films also tend to push toward you know, feeling uncomfortable, uh, in you know, making the audience, audience feel uncomfortable. That's what I get out of There Will Be Blood, too. That, that discordant opening chord is it, it puts me on edge or pushes me back too far in my seat just a little bit. I, I, what is the utility of, of that uh, to your eye? At, at what point do you walk that line of just saying, OK, we're going to lose people? yeah that that is a tough decision right so and i mean
2: a lot of things are happening in the editing room uh you know when you shoot it you normally don't shoot the movie in order and you get like a different kind of uh uh, feeling being on set and and uh, that it's always good if the editor has a fresh view on things too Because he was not on set, he doesn't know the little stories going on or whatever. And so he has more like a neutral uh, point of view, like what the later audience uh, need. But I think it's also, uh, if you don't have to basically, in a way, I was always free to do whatever I wanted. So it's like this kind of what is similar to the Paul Thomas Anderson situation, right? I don't think if you have to, in a way, convince somebody of a cut, and you can actually cut it the way you want it. Then I think you have more courage to to do things you yourself would watch, and not necessarily the people who go into uh, Thor or Avengers or something. So yeah, it's, you know, like, and I think he he did in the film definitely uh, the same that it was not for him to find an arc and a three act kind of uh, model to tell the story, you know, for like advertising breaks or something. As I do it too, I, with, with, especially with the Rampage films, but also uh, with Darfur or Tunnel Rats, I don't tell the stories typical how people would maybe uh, expect, like a Vietnam War film like Tunnel Rats. Uh, it's not told like a, a, a commercial film in a way. The biggest uh, mistake you can do is to make something boring And that means for me also, like you cannot just repeat what other people do, and you tell the same story but with different actors this time. That's not interesting for me.
1: Well, that's an interesting, um, an interesting point to just um, bring up in the context of this film because I, I think that in Hollywood, I think that you know if if some storytellers, filmmakers, screenwriters. Approached a studio and said, This is going to be a great film we're going to start the movie fifteen minutes. no one talks, and we're following one guy as he's trying to build an oil well. yes and I would imagine a lot <laughs> of studio yeah, heads I'd like your like, money hmm, let's let's <laughs> let's maybe cut all of that out and but we have that here, and i'm not bored for a second and I, I find that to be such an interesting perspective because to a certain extent, when you see a film start this way, it seems to be going exactly against what uh, Hollywood actually says they want. You remember the film Breaking the Waves from Lars von Trier? It was
2: also on the oil rig in the beginning, and I think Stellan Skarsgård or whatever gets then paralyzed in the accident, you know, where he uh, 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 is then for the rest of the film, and then um, the actress, who was the actress, she has to... There was, by the way, another film what we would be on my list of... Uh, uh, I'm not a last frontier fan. I have to say it, but Breaking the Waves was a masterpiece because it's uh, it was this kind of it went from this to completely absurd, but so gripping that you went with it. You know the fact that she has the prostitute herself and ultimately gets raped and killed so that he can walk again. I mean, it's completely, it, 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 but that was the story, right?
1: So, yeah, right, right. And,
2: and it was so unbelievable, but it totally worked in the context. They, they told the story because it looked like the, the uh, what was the Colin Farrell film from this year? The the, the Banshees the of Inesherin? It was the same surrounding, right? So you had the same kind of feeling that is where they live and whatever. And, uh, and then and then it has a completely meta, Metaphoric Turn into There is somebody in heaven Who is Like the conductor and he makes her Die so he can walk And it's insane But it totally worked the way He did it there and in, I, I think that The same in The Will Be Blood I was not bored as you said for a Second I could yeah. watch it 10 minutes longer you know like <laughs> right, it's, Exactly it's like, yeah. <laughs> you know and it was also spectacular done. we have to say too like the stunt and everything how they did that like you know like that looked all uh extremely good and the same when the uh the the oil rig the, the thing explodes where where the, the sun gets dead like when yeah, yeah right
1: the, the hearing was also extremely well done like really filmmaking uh in, in perfection and, and the cinematography like i mean the the shot that stands out for me Uh, There is uh, I think it's Kieran Hines when he comes up and and he's standing next to Daniel Plainview, who's drenched in oil from head to toe and it's pitch black outside. So you only see like little tiny pieces of of Daniel Plainview through the oil from the firelight, whereas Kieran Hines is completely illuminated. And he asks about the sun and (laughs) and Daniel Plainview's response is like, oh, yeah, he's at the in the uh, mess hall. And and Kieran Hines is the one who runs off to check on the sun, and you just have this man who's like completely sucked into the darkness, standing there like he just can't even see the man anymore. I I, I feel like the way that uh, Anderson and his cinematographer, mm-hmm. the way that they put it together, like it just I there are moments like this that stand out as like so defining of kind of the the theme of this person who's like completely devoid of humanity here and is just. A representative of oil it's interesting, yeah, and I mean what the one of the reasons I picked that film
2: now, even if it's sixteen years old right or fifteen years uh is I never saw a film like this since then I didn't had another uh this kind of blown away experience uh since since then where where i where I feel like that are the reasons I wanted to make movies in the first place, uh, to tell um like stories that are bigger than life, they're different, they show or the possibility. How Osnwell awesome, said it, right? We we live in the in the uh the century of film because it has all the arts together. A painter, a writer, you're always limited to something. Film is everything. It's it's a book, it's a painting, it's visual you know, like it's moving. And, and I, I totally agree with it. And that, that film was for me, like really like a milestone, what kept me up, you know, where I felt like, cause that was the time where I got the worst rivers of my life doing all the video game films. Right. So, and then that time I watched that film and I felt, wow, that is basically what I would love to do, you know? Yeah. So, uh, but who would give me the money for it? So, and, and that is the thing. What, what, uh, um, I, I I don't have a film in the last 10, 12 years where I would say came even close. Also in the Oscar nominations, what films were nominated for the Oscars, not even close th- to uh, there will be blood. Maybe before films like this, uh, they had a similar impact on me were like uh, dances with wolves was also a film where I felt like that is something why I want to make films. And Sure. Interesting is, I'm, I'm sure you watched um, the offer about making of the Godfather, that uh, uh, that eight part right. series with Miles Teller, right? Miles Teller, right? Yeah, and I liked the show because it showed how Hollywood was, you know, this kind of like they took risks on the Godfather, for example, you know, and there was a time where there were just people with. Well, like Bob Evans at that point with balls, you know, and he, when he pitches Chinatown, for example, right. To the blue dawn, to the owner of the studio. And they look at him like he's completely out of his fucking mind. Like this kind of like, how can we have uh, a film about water with the name Chinatown in LA? You know, what, what is it? And he said, no, it's yeah. a good film. Just forget it. Like let, let, let Roman Polanski do it. <laughs> and, and I think that times are over. I, I, I submitted things to to Amazon, a few things, and then I got back. You get an algorithm that's a, basically you get a computer program where you have to fit your film in, and then it goes through the computer before humans reading it. So they don't want your script. They send you you uh, submit something, and then you get like this kind of fill out form, like you make a driver test or something. <laughs> and if you don't have the right way to put it in. Then the algorithm will just bury you, and like four or five wow. weeks later, you get like, "No, it's not what we're looking for, and that is crazy. We're living in a
0: time like this where now, wait, wait, wait a minute, are you telling me you have to do that to submit a, a project to yes. amazon? You, yes. like you're like you're applying for a job
2: Yeah, you have to I did submit- that twice so what's, so what's happening with Amazon is when you, when you when you send it, the, you have two options: you get right away no. Right. And then they don't even put it in the system. Yeah. Or they think it could be interesting. Then they send you a link. And on that link, you have to fill out like pages and pages of stuff. So you, you squeeze, you know, you squeeze your, your film into the form. Like who's your character? Why? Whatever. You know, like stuff wow. like that. And, and that is so bad because now when I think about it, like think about there will be blood you would fill out that form. I mean you can directly push delete and that was it. They would never make that film. And but that is a real problem. And I think that that they start using artificial intelligence, judging scripts and whatever. And and you know, and then you have like you can maybe get plus points when you have actors attached everybody wants. Then you immediately uh generate traffic, you know, and then the, the computer wakes up when you say I have Ryan Reynolds, boom money, right? So no matter what you want to shoot. But I think that goes all on the wrong track, and I think the old days were better, where you just had a mogul sitting there and making decisions out of his ass, but because Look at the 80s. Sometimes it
1: yeah, the, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes so, it works. Sometimes you get I, Chinatown, exactly. Well, that's interesting because I mean Todd Field, who just did Tar. I don't know if you saw that film, but I mean that was one where he said, "I don't know if I'm going to be making movies anymore because making the movies that I want to be making, they just don't seem interested in me telling those stories anymore." And uh, like it took him, you know, ten plus years to get that made. And I think that's that's part of the big challenge. And that's why I think it's interesting looking at something like this. And Paul Thomas Anderson is a director where I I think, especially when you look like what he's done since, which I think is just the master uh Phantom Thread and Licorice Pizza. I mean, he's not like a very prolific filmmaker, but he kind of continues making stuff that I suppose it's kind of walking a line of doing some like challenging the audience, but still finding a way to at least make enough money so that they keep giving him money. It's just not as often as maybe he'd like, but still, he's he's still able to kind of crank these things out. I don't know. I I think that there's something really interesting in the way that he chooses to tell stories and especially this story, which I don't know. I I mean, on paper, it's like I want to make a movie about the oil industry. Uh, you know, it's, it, <laughs> the
0: oil <laughs> industry in 1889!
1: A <laughs> TV series started it already. Yeah, it's yeah. just like, sometimes I'm like, I can't believe that this guy got money to make this movie. It's, it boggles my mind, but I'm thrilled. Well, and did you did you say in the list Inherent Vice when you're talking about that oh, was I forgot another thing Inherent Vice. that he did? Right, right,
0: though, right? Yeah. That was one I, I think I liked more than you did. I don't remember, but I uh, that was one that I I really enjoyed. Like This is a, a guy who has somehow been able to develop his career before the algorithm took over, right? It it almost feels like he kind of beat that system and developed a name. Like, is it possible for uh, a, a a Paul Thomas Anderson who hasn't made any films yet to to get movies made like this today? Like, if he were to start in twenty twenty three, I think it would be a real challenge. No, but you see, like, whatever. But it, it it's like this kind of
2: crazy thing that. Orson awesome. well stayed with Peter Bogdanovich and died poor, and then Peter Bogdanovich died poor uh, himself, right? So, and that is how uh, the world treats, like, historical important figures for the history of cinema, you know? So, I mean, I, I recognize that a lot, like, uh, uh, of course, like studying film and reading about directors, that... Nothing is automatic that it keeps that they keep doing things with you. Maybe Clint Eastwood is the last survivor of this kind of just let him do it. Yeah, maybe you know. So and I mean he's now ninety two. Hopefully he can it's, uh, do that film now about the juror thing. Mm-hmm. Let's just he's doing one more like court drama, whatever he wants to do. I think uh, it would be great if he can finish that film. And, uh, but after him, nobody will have a deal anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I actually think if, if Steven Spielberg says, okay, I want to do ET2, he gets the money. But if Steven Spielberg says, I want to do now this, he's not necessarily getting a green light. Yeah. You know, and he's like maybe the most known director, at least of the last 50 years. So, um, and that is the thing. It's like nothing is automatic now. And I feel also that directors in a way are exchangeable you know you don't even know all the directors anymore and th- that was one thing when i said i'm coming now i'm coming back i did six years ago rampage three and now i'm coming back and I do first shift uh, the, the police crime drama first and then i do hopefully one or two more movies soon and um then a guy from the hollywood reporter he said at least everybody knows you he said, "We don't actually know anybody anymore, so the audience don't know people. If we put names of directors in on like a headline in the Hollywood Reporter, nobody gives a shit because they never heard about that person.
0: If it's not Ridley Scott, uh, uh, you know, James Cameron, Steven Spielberg, yeah, like there are there are few names, yeah, actually few names, yeah. So and, and he said, and
2: and well, everybody knows also what is a good thing. He said at least because uh, uh, whatever." I I did a lot of films. I got a lot of press, a lot of negative press, whatever. But on on the other hand, uh, people love to follow me, what what I'm doing. So uh, and he said it's a good thing if some characters coming back into the game, who were gone. And and uh, I I think it's sad. You know, it's sad that now only actors are heading articles or whatever, and a director is totally, it went into an exchangeable situation. But it has to do maybe also with the subject matters and with the fact that uh, uh, streamers, of course, are in a totally different world because we had theatrical releases, then we had DVD releases, then we had TV uh, appearances. So it was this kind of like a film had a longer life. Right Now they're giving people $200 million and after one week, the movie has gone forever and nobody gives a shit, you know, and it disappeared. Uh, in, then you're like moving away from new releases on Netflix or where, you know, whatever stream it is,
1: uh, into no man's land. Yeah, you just hope that it ends up in the like the popular top 10 or something so that it kind of has a longer life. And that's interesting because, like, a movie like this. I don't know if it could find its audience in in a streaming service, unless it was something like Netflix that was also doing all of the awards push and everything. But otherwise, like, it, I don't know. It's it's an interesting market out there where this again, just going back to the point of like, this is a challenging film about a challenging character, and it, it's a a story about the oil industry and like, um, and you know, as, especially you know, it's a story where. Uh, I don't know there's a lot of complexities with like greed and capitalism and religion you know you're certainly pushing but- buttons there and I-, I think a lot of people uh, that sort of story isn't necessarily going to be the thing that they gravitate to on the streaming services. No that's
2: 100% no but I think there will be Blood is a film about America.
1: Yeah. Right.
2: You know about what really happened in America you know people came from all over most of Europe and then who was first was first and people were left like whatever the natives got killed you know then they they divided the country uh and uh pushed the surviving natives away um they built the railroad then they recognized we need slaves we don't have enough like people we can abuse here anymore so they imported slaves <laughs> you know yeah and then i mean
0: that is the rough story, basically. What? Yeah, America is built on a bed of blood and violence. Yes, it's and in the yes, title. Division. <laughs> there it's will be in blood. The title, but this is really interesting. Like, the the grammar of the title also is, I find, provocative. The fact that we get to the end of the movie, and he's sitting, and the last line of the movie is, I'm huh. finished. Yeah. Yeah. It's, he's finished. And yet we just get to sit in this space, this sort of liminal space of so much blood left to be shed in the expansion to the West. Thanks to the, thanks in large part to oil and exploitation. And so I, I it's, it's incredibly powerful. We have a, we have a, a thing that we say around our community. Thanks a, a large part to our fantastic community member, Nick Langdon, who when the last duel came out, it said, go see that movie in the theater. You may not love it. It may not be a five star film for you, but it's a movie for grownups. And more than anything right now, we have to go see movies in the theater that are made for grownups. And I think this is one of those movies. Like you see a movie like this once in a every number of years. Yeah, we have to we have to go see these movies if we want these movies, because the rest of it is just an algorithmic machine. It's just another, as you say, directors become fungible resources for Marvel. That's the that's the bottom line.
2: Yeah. And I think also seeing all the DVDs behind you, uh, I'm the same. I want like how the record comes back to, you know, like on the, on the record player, I still have my record player here. Uh, You know, it's like, I love DVDs because I want the making of, I want the director's commentary and all of that gets lost now. And then the, the, after our generation there is no loving film generation there more you know like you i see it with my own kids right they're watching films on their cell phone and i like how can you watch this on your cell phone it's Horrible! i mean you know we have a, a tv like watch it in tv and they're sitting on the couch watching crap and you think like how they could ever really love this kind of fascination what we all had growing up watching films or going in the in the movie theaters. And when I go with them watching a film, they, they getting bored because it's too long. You know, they cannot even to- uh, hold the attention span anymore because everything they watch is 10 minutes long, you know, and that is the, it's very shocking to see that, that development. And I think it's also this kind, I'm not against starting a film with an action sequence or whatever, but if it's a must, then it's shit, you know. And that is the thing because they, of course, looking uh, specifically also Netflix and code cool, They're looking into if nothing happens in the first two minutes, they're not interested in the product, and that is limits the possibility to develop a story. Yeah, you know, I mean, what happened to the slow burn stuff? You know, or the stuff what what then pays off big in the end, and you you need a little. Uh, Patience to go through it That that is all alarming signs Because the studios I think they just go for the 250 million dollar films now Where they know we spend so much money People will come to the movies But as as you said It's like What would happen to a film now With There Will Be Blood If it would come now in the movie theaters There would be a big chance That it doesn't make Two million dollars box office you know, that it's just nice and nobody watches it. And that is very sad to 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 recognize it.
0: How to do an award season, Andy.
1: Oh, this movie was very popular in the awards circuits. It was I mean, good year, 2007, a lot of strong films, and this one still was one of them that stood up tall. 118 wins with 137 other nominations. It made many of the critics' top 10 lists of the year and, it, and a number of the top uh, 10 lists of the decade as well. Um, At the Oscars, it had eight nominations. It won two of them. Daniel Day-Lewis won Best Actor, and it won Best Cinematography for Ron Elswit. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, but lost all of those to No Country for Old Men. Nominated for Best Art Direction, but lost to Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, and nominated for Best Film Editing and Sound Editing, but lost to The Bourne Ultimatum.
0: I don't know. That is an extraordinary lineup. I am gobsmacked that there were that many movies that I like
1: in that list it was i mean 2007 it was huge a lot of people say that was really kind of the last you know you have these years like 1999 so many good films yeah. we've talked about 1976 a lot of great films that year 2007 had so many good films i mean it was a uh, quite a quite a tough run and and i think we've talked about almost all of them all of them
0: especially as you transition to the Baftas.
1: There are even more the ones that i just did yeah well Yeah. In the BAFTAs, I think the only one we haven't talked about was Atonement. Um, At the BAFTAs, this had nine nominations. It lost Best Film to Atonement. Uh, Paul Dana was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but lost to Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men. It lost Best Adapted Screenplay to The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. That was something something we certainly talked about on this show. Uh, best, best Cinematography lost to No Country for Old Men. Best Production Design lost to Atonement. Best Sound lost to The Bourne Ultimatum. Daniel Day-Lewis did win a uh, leading actor. And then Best Director, they lost to No Country for Old Men. And it was nominated for the Anthony Asquith Award for Film Music, but lost to La Vie en Rose. Yeah, we didn't like that one that much. It We liked the performance. But she was great. We Very liked her card. performance yep. a lot. That's exactly right. Well, okay.
0: So, uh, speaking of money, how did it do at the box office?
1: Well, Anderson's film cost $25 million to make, which is $36.75 million in today's dollars. The movie debuted at Fantastic Fest in 2007 before a release for awards consideration on December 26, 2007 opposite... <gasps> National Treasure Book of Secrets, Charlie Wilson's War, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, Aliens vs. Predator, Requiem, P.S. I Love You, Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story, The Water Horse, and The Great Debaters, not to mention the limited releases of The Bucket List and Persepolis. Wow. Whew. Yeah, it is a busy Christmas release schedule, end of the year awards sort of thing. This movie slowly expanded its number of screens until February 1st, when they pushed it over a thousand screens. Finally, likely from Oscar announcements, that is also about when it started cracking the top ten at the box office as well, though not for very long. This movie went on to make just over forty million domestically and almost thirty-eight million internationally for a total gross of one hundred thirteen point five million in today's dollars. That is a great turn for Anderson's Dark Tale, landing it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost four hundred eighty-six thousand dollars.
0: Can we tra- can we transition a bit to uh, to the, the first shift? I, I'm, I'm so curious about how you uh, how you made this transition. I, I was reading up on some of your interviews from some now years ago, uh, you know, and it, reading it like it was today, you saying, yeah, I'm retiring. And you were talking a lot about the economics of the business and the fact that there was no. Uh, that the bottom had fallen out of, of video rentals and that that was such a direct impact and you decided to use the word retire and here we're we're back. I'm curious how the world's changed for you.
2: No, I think that the time 2016, when I said it's over, it was really the death of Blockbuster. And uh, for me, it was like, that was one of the biggest revenue streams of my films. They always did uh mediocre some bad some mediocre uh on on the box office but they did very good on dvd sales and and uh with this i didn't saw a replacement at that point now with all that streamers around and more possibilities to basically basically do various deals with various streamers it is a better chance to maybe get the money back if you produce something or um or they pay it even And um, that was the reason I wanted to come back. But mostly I just missed filmmaking and I missed making films. Um, So I did a small film in Germany, Hanau, about a terror attack here by Frankfurt. And then I felt, no, I want to tell bigger stories again and other stories. So I wrote basically this first shift film. That was it, came, it didn't came from nowhere because we had like I had a film twelve hours I wanted to do in South Africa, but I couldn't get a big enough star. So I really tried and the I did the because nobody wanted to
0: come to South Africa with you?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I that is the thing, I still don't know. We got very good readers reports about the script and some agents really liked it, but whatever the actors in the end didn't didn't want to do it hmm. and now a lot of actors of course getting a lot of offers because of all the streaming films so it's not like they they need that film or something they they there are maybe 100 actors with real names uh you know and they're always uh, when the agent approaches netflix they would love to have him in a, in a tv series whatever so it's not for them to get a job. So I couldn't get it. So, and then I felt okay, I loved New York. I, I loved South Wall Street shooting uh, partly there and so on. And um, I felt if I shoot in New York, it will be definitely easier to get actors because you can just get them and pick them up in the morning. and pick them Yeah, <laughs> right on <laughs> the corner. Easier, easier uh, casting process. And I wanted to do more like an ensemble uh, film. And I had three scenes written for years. A lot of times I've write a scene, but I don't know in what I want to put it. Like, it's like this kind of, like there's no back, no story to it, but it's that I know that one scene or that one thing will totally work. And I felt if I tell the story of two cops working the first time together, going through one 12-hour shift, I can have that that three little side plots in this, and they're getting confronted with the with the police. And uh, one is, for example, I mean, I give one away is like a killer, like a mafia kind of a killer situation where they offer a guy, they kill his kid, and let him live, mm. and he trades that off and let his kid get killed, but they kill him also. So but it's a very just <laughs> oh <God>. <laughs> overall scene. What I did in Rampage, yeah. and like the very cynical brutal, uh, uh, scene. Yeah. And, uh, um, I got uh, Daniel Soli. He was, uh, he was the, the, uh, the bad guy in the juice with James Franco. He was the, okay. the brutal mafia killer. Right. So I asked him to do it and he, he did it, you know, and then I had like Gary <laughs> He was in 10 the Scorsese films always when you see mobsters he's always yeah,
1: there. The, he's the guy. And, he's and, always there.
2: We got a very good cast doing that scene because, they loved it, right? So, and so, and that that is one of that, that, uh, uh, scenes. And so I think I have a good, in a way, a good film, right? So Ethan Manichis is editing it. He did, uh, From Dust to Down. Mm-hmm. He, he directed Machidi. And, and so. Fantastic pedigree. Because yeah. Last, last November, I was in LA and the guy came. And he said, "Oh, I love post blah blah blah." And I, I was at the American Film Market, and I I didn't know who it was. And I said, "So what are you doing?" He said, "I'm an editor." And he said, "He's he's manicus," and uh, I did, I did it didn't ring the bell. And then he said, "No, no, I did with Robert Rodriguez. We we did the Sin City and everything." So uh, I would love to do a film uh, with you. So I, and then I called him and I said, "I do a first shift. You want to edit it?" And he's doing it right now uh, in LA.
0: No, at, as of right now, you haven't seen the rough cut of First no, Shift. No, that no. Is in it, his it takes name. another three weeks, um, and then we
2: will, we will see what we have. But he said, so far, everything looks good. What is good for me to, as a f- uh, feedback? Because um, when you do kind of a road movie, what it was, it's you don't really know, is it all fitting together? And then I told him also, look, you have, we have various options. You can have this kind of side stories as one block, and then, you know, like the, the cops are after and before. Or you cut it all parallel, like happening at the same time, uh, like a little puzzle. And I gave him this option. I said, look, try both. Let's see what works the best. Present me what works best. Then we discuss it. Uh, but, I, but I have the feeling based on all the cast I got, like all the little parts were very good actors. James Megaman from Orange is a New Black. Uh, Gino Pizzi is very good. Kristen Renton from Sons of Anarchy and so on so um, th- that is a good cast you know it's not like a superstar cast but everybody is known like you, you have 10 actors you saw 50 times already so and uh, I think that is a good film for me to come back and it's also, a different you know not Canada this time no uh, like a full American film basically and I think it's uh, hopefully it helps me for the next projects then too do, do you have distribution for it? No, I just did it now. And I felt like uh, I want to finish it and present it. And then let's see uh, who uh, wants it the most. But I, I, I want a little theatrical release. You know, I want to go on festivals. Sure. I want to be in a few movie theaters. I just don't want to be, boom, it's on the streamer and it disappears to No Man's Land after a week. So I want that. That it looks like we shot CinemaScope. So I want that it's
0: on screen.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, deservedly so. Well, let us know when it when it does get uh, some distribution, so we can uh, make sure that we we uh, let all of our people yeah. know. Yeah,
2: I mean, it it will be out, it will come out, no matter what, and and uh, you know, but yeah, but let let's see. And uh, I felt like um, it's also a story. What is not? It has also like hope in it. It's not all negative, right? Or or brutal or whatever. So it 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 goes like this. And it's not so cynical as a, as a rampage uh,
1: is, for example. Sure. Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, you've got that coming for people to check out. Uh, plug your podcast again. What's the name of it, so people can check it out? Uva Raw. Uva Bowl Raw. Yeah, yeah. Find it on on all your podcatchers. So check that out. You can get all all of Uva's uh, opinions on everything going on with the the potential writer strike that we have to anything else going on in the industry. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. Gary Otto will tell you about his new car. I just got to that episode. I, absolutely. I, I listened to this very long. <laughs> you guys are awesome. He's from New
2: York, but he's in Florida. I know him forever. Yeah. And, uh, no, the uh, another thing what, what we what we do not not me but in LA so they do new 4K versions of Postal and some other films and will yeah. do a new Blu-ray and DVD release. Great. What uh, yes. I'm very happy about, uh, I got contacted by uh, Louis Justin is his name. They have a lab and everything, and so because I want the the highest maximum quality, so we had to sure. go back to the 35 millimeter originals. And um, looking forward to, and I do new uh, commentaries
0: to to the film. So uh, of just of just those two of of rampage. No, of postal? I think
2: postal tunnel rats.
0: That's what what I was interested in. Is are, you, are we going to get a new tunnel rat?
1: Yeah, tunnel rats, uh, and then uh, yeah, but but postal Pete, you get even more of Dave Foley in four K.
0: <laughs> Put all the day Foley in 4K. There's a,
1: plenty. 4K, there's a lot yeah, of day yeah. Foley. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, I would love
2: like Lionsgate is, is like uh, uh, they're not really cooperative with with anything. And I told them like, look, if we can get the money, basically that they investing it, in and they just want to release a new DVD in exchange. I told Lionsgate, how can you not do that deal for Alone in the Dark and House of the Dead? Because with 4K versions of that films, they can relicense it to the streamers and would get maybe way more money for it because it's 4K. And that they
0: didn't even answer me. And I like, but what are you doing? I sense. mean, uh, especially right now, right when they've just rediscovered that. Look, video game movies are uh, are kind yeah. of awesome. Like <laughs> yeah. people yeah. would stream these movies for sure. Yes,
2: you know, and and I think the the, the re release like on the Blu Ray in 4k of house of the dead would sell good right now like on blu-ray it, the people would
1: still buy it yeah yeah, yeah. get it out there yeah. <laughs> man, man. okay <laughs> yeah. well that's it for today's episode of movies we like thank you so much uve Ball, for joining us today we really appreciate it for all of you we hope you like the show and we certainly hope that you like the movie like we do here on movies we like The Next Reel presents Movies We Like as a part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. The music is Clap by Out of Flux. Find the show at truestory.fm and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at The Next Reel. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, we always appreciate it if you drop one there for us. See you next time. Oh, yeah. I forgot the exclamation point.
0: <laughs> Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort.
1: the slash Originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner.
0: That's right. Head over to the slash Originals to pick out your next read and dig in today.